Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Devarim, which is Deuteronomy, chapter 1 and 2, and the first 22 verses of chapter 3. Mind you, we'll cover a little bit of this. We'll also spend a little bit of time in the Haftor portion, which is semi-related. I say semi because Haftor portions at times are selected to match the Torah portion, but sometimes it's selected to match other things, other events. And this case happens to be the, the Shabbat of prophecy. So uh, the Isaiah chapter 1 is also correlates to that. But uh, it, this is also relevant to our Torah portion as well. It kind of covers both. So when it comes to Deuteronomy, uh, it, or Devarim, which, which uh, language you're referring to, uh, is obviously the words of Moses. Now, this book is distinctly different from the previous two, four books, uh, Genesis through Numbers. Deuteronomy is distinctly different in that this is more of a commentary style that Moses is giving. Moses is putting, putting on the people. He's talking about the Torah and explaining it and expanding it, not in the form of adding laws necessarily, more in the form of clarifying purpose and the, the objective of laws is more, is more accurately spelled out and that how you would do certain things. And unlike, for example, Exodus, which gives you certain snippets of a, here's, a, here's an instruction to follow uh, but, and gives you a few examples occasionally, Jeremy sometimes takes some of those instructions, obviously all centered typically around the Ten Commandments themselves, and expands and gives you more examples, ideas of how certain things are done and, and, and how to apply them. So Jeremy is a little bit different in the other books. And so as a result, there are some variations you'll note. And mind you, I'm not saying Moses' mind is a little bit off, but uh, some discrepancies exist. <laughs> and Deuteronomy is uh, recalling information. Have you ever talked to an old person and uh, their mind is good, but the details are a little fuzzy the older they get. So this is, we're talking a 120-year-old man. Uh, he's, he's, he's a little bit old, if you just on a little bit side there. Uh, he may be still very viable and strong in certain capacities, but you'll note that he describes how uh, kind and generous the, 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 the Esau, the tribe of Esau and Moab were along the past of the land. Uh, well, that is not the record that it records in numbers. They actually said, we're not letting you pass. Just go away. Get out of here. But this records a passing of allowing the pass through, which is interesting because when Yephthah recalls this, this topic as well in the book of Judges, chapter 11 of the book of Judges, we'll get there later. He says the same thing that not in Deuteronomy's record, he records what Numbers' record was that, yeah, you guys wouldn't let us pass. You were stubborn and self-willed and you just said, you know, forget you, go on, you're on your own. And so uh, Yephthah uh, reiterates or, or recalls, I should say, Numbers account of what happened for Esau and Moab, but Deuteronomy has a more a pleasant viewpoint of them. Again, it, I, I can't explain the reasons as to why there is a discrepancy difference, but they just is. Uh, it just it's just how it works. Some people it could be a memory issue, or there could be other details not explained, meaning that the numbers does not cover it say all details. However, I will admit uh, that uh, in Yefta's comments to uh, the in, in, the, in the book of Judges chapter 11, his comment to, to, to Ammon, Ammon does not dispute any of Yephthah's uh, uh, claims. 
So anyhow, so it's a little bit different. And so Book of Deuteronomy, when you're looking at the first roughly four chapters or so, uh, generally speaking, it is an introduction. Like, say hi, hey, everybody, this is going on. <laughs> and so it really gets into detail how to, how to apply the various commandments and, and the instructions of how to live. I was mostly dominated by the remaining chapters of the book from chapter five to like 26 or so thereabouts covers most of, of how he wants to live. So the, the details of, of what life was supposed to be like and how to, how to observe and be an observant person. You will note if you ever have a conversation with any general Christian, I say general, meaning the average, um, book of Deuteronomy, the vast majority obey it. The vast majority obey the major- most of the book of Deuteronomy. There are exceptions. I get that. There are variations and details that are not, not followed. But the majority of people in general, most laws, the world, are pretty consistent with this book. Uh, I shouldn't say world. That's not fair. Most laws of the Christian-based world are consistent with this book. Obviously, I'm not referring to the Islamic or the uh, uh, Southeast Asian type of religious beliefs. But they're pretty consistent with the book because the book is about how you treat the people. How do you live peaceably in a civilized world? Um, I had my charge with my children earlier this week about uh, governing. Now, what is government? Well, it's within inside oneself. You control what you do. Um, if, I have, if I don't self-govern, we call it self-control. But I don't self-govern it. Govern is a limitation. Or I say, hey, I only do so far, no, no, no more. But I can restrict myself down to a certain level of activity. What is permissible, what's not permissible. If I can't self-govern, I can't govern my family. I can't tell my children, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. I can't put a limitation on them if I can't put a limitation on myself. Yes, that's my children's uh, government class. They, they had this conversation. Like, hey, well, that's, I'm not talking about government, I'm not a politician, but the idea of how government's supposed to work. Um, and so it works really well. The, the idea is self-governing. And so you go from self-governing to family governing. You can govern your family. Well, then that works at all, but you also actually have other things called neighbors who are not your family. Well, I can say, well, neighbors, we live by these rules right here. The neighbor says, well, uh, you have a rule number seven and number 43, uh, I disagree with. I take step, your, your rule seven, your 43, and I'm throwing them away. So, well, but they're my rules. And they say, yeah, that's your family. You live by those rules. Number 743, I'm, I'm, I'm scrapping. I'm adding rule number 473 and 92 to replace them. So, I have my family rules. I have neighbors have their family rules. And so civilization is, all right, we take their rules and my rules. That's what the commonality amongst them. How do we work together as a community? Now we have the book of Deuteronomy, which basically tells how to do that. And we have our self-control component, but we also have how do we interact with the people. So Deuteronomy is really good at that. It explains how to deal with uh, you know, treating others, treating other people, your neighbors. And that expands from self-governing to community governing. How do you do it with your community of your neighborhood or, or, or your village? And it goes from community to cities. Because if you can't govern any more of these small things, you're not going to govern the larger things. And Moses, of course, explains this a little bit when he discusses about the, the, the selection of the people who are in charge, the tribes and such, the judges of tens and hundreds and thousands and such. Same principle. That the guy is in charge of thousands, can't govern himself. He should not be in charge of thousands, right? <laughs> Oust that guy. He's not worth it. <laughs> so if you can't control yourself, you have no business controlling anybody else. Um, and that same principle applies obviously from, uh, from cities to obviously to districts or, or states and of course then eventually nations. So the governing is, is starts with within oneself. Governing is an idea of an internal, you govern yourself. We call it 
self-control. Elagidori focuses upon self-control and then community control. How do you how do you handle yourself within the context of your neighbors and your community and how you treat other people? And of course, is all the self-control is based on the principle of there is one greater than yourself. That's your God. If you don't believe there's one greater than yourself, then I get to choose whatever self-control rule I, I, I decide for today. And then tomorrow I'll flip around to something else. Well, if I don't have an absolute one who is greater than myself, I don't have a, a reason to self-control. I no longer have a reason for self-governing. I now have anarchy, which a lot of our cities are currently experiencing. <laughs> a lack of self-control, lack of community control, lack of any kind of control, because there's nothing greater than themselves. And that's a serious problem. And unfortunately, for uh, what we learn in Deuteronomy chapter 20, that ends very, very poorly. Uh, we'll get to that later. Deuteronomy 20, verses uh, 16, 17, and 18 discuss natures of people who have deprived themselves and lost all self-control. Um, God exterminates them and everyone, including children. So lack of self-control is a serious problem. Okay. And Moses discusses this topic. Now you will notice, let's just start at chapter one, uh, verse one. You will note that there are a number of place names here that uh, Moses starts out with. Now these have been talked about for many years. Uh, I, I'm, I think, I don't remember if I did it last time. Maybe Jeff did it last time. I don't remember. Whoever covered Deuteronomy chapter one last time, I, I've forgotten. Anyhow, um, these, they talk about the years. These first, uh, these multiple place names. In verse one, it says, uh, "These other side of Jordan." I'm not going to discuss that topic on the side because that's a whole other ball of wax. Um, concerning the wilderness, and it also concerns the Araba, uh, opposite sea of reeds, and Paran and Tophel. It names Laban. It names Hazaroth. It names uh, Dizav. Uh, all these different places. Uh, you will note that some of these places. We know of the record in your Bible, your Torah, as far as places they stayed, they stopped at, they camped at. Some places are not recorded at all. And these are not in order of any particular rhyme or reason to them. And uh, so people who are smarter than me have came, realized uh, there's discrepancies and there's reasons for them. So the, the, some of these place names are not necessarily place names, but topic names. Um, topic names meaning events that occurred, not necessarily at the place, but the event. And so, for example, uh, since this is Moses giving his farewell address before he passes away, uh, in this place, for example, the wilderness. Well, no, the wilderness, there are a lot of wildernesses, that, wildernesses here, but in people, again, rabbis smaller than I am, noted that uh, wilderness of Zin, which is where the people complain about starvation. And then we also have next list was the Areba, Areba uh, where the Midianite women seduced uh, the people of the Israelites in their sexual misconduct with Balaam. And of course, the uh, Sea of Reeds, uh, that's when uh, they, they, they first proclaimed or, or complained that there were no graves in Egypt to brought us out here to die. And then the list here of Paran, which is when they sent the spies out. And the spies went out, 10 came back, a better report, and okay, now you're going to take 40 years of wandering the wilderness. The next list he gives is Tophel Laban. Children, close your ears, please. Close your ears. Come on. Help, work with me. Come on. I don't want to hear this word. Plug your ears, Yosef. Thank you. 
It all means stupid white. Okay. <laughs> I don't... Um, it literally means stupid white. So the idea is that your activity, your action regarding what was white, what was white? The manna. Okay, you can unplug your ears now, kids. Thanks. So, um, yeah, so the manna, their, their reaction to people's uh, belief or their issues with manna, how the reaction to manna was. And then Hazarot, well, Hazarot was where Miriam slandered Moses. And of course, the leprosy struck her face. And then the Dizahav means abundant gold, meaning your sin of the gold, which is the golden cap. So these place names aren't necessarily locations per se, they're events. The things that they sinned about, their weaknesses, their failures. So you go, okay, since if, I, if, I, if I'm giving my farewell address, say, okay, everybody, let's cover all your screw-ups. I'll remember them all, list up, screw up their one, two, three, list all the screw ups all the way down the list. Now let's talk about how your conduct should be. So it's like a farewell address of a, of a rough man kind of combination throw together. Um, anyhow, so it, obviously they had, that's the, for the first, so it, Moses begins his farewell address of, of, of pointing out, here's all your list of screw ups, everybody. Now let's discuss how you should be living. It's kind of like how a parent recommends a child after a child's done. Screw up number one, two, three, four, five. Okay, guys, you've done enough times. I've given you 25 warnings. Warnings are done. Here's your punishment. You remind them of all the screw ups first and why they're getting the full punishment. And they say, that's not fair. Life's not fair. But we go through it and explain why you're correcting them for all these list of things that they did that day and they should have known better and they knew better. They just refused to self control. So, hence, that's what Moses is doing. And of course, obviously, he points out all these things you did, you had, you could have done, but we had 11-day journey, but it took us 38 years to do. So you did these things over a 38-year period, 38, 40 years technically, but they had the first two years there, a year and a half was actually you know, intentional. Um, there was a total of 40 years total, but 38 years of wasting, they could have spent the 11, day, the 11 days instead. But in the 11 days, they decided to sin, and these are lists of all the various places and things they did over that time period. So the one thing I do appreciate, God was kind to Moses. And he said Moses would not, would not be able to go into the land. Verse 4, it points out that after he referred to Moses, had smitten Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Hashban, and all king of Bashan, who dwelt in Hashroth and Edre. Now in th- this verse, it's just a reiteration or a, a comfort to, 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 to Moses that uh, he at least got to live long enough to prove the 10 spies were full of it. A lot of to prove them wrong. They were afraid. 10 spies had said, hey, everybody, these guys are tall. They're big. We can't defeat them. We're weak. We're little. Uh, uh, we, just, we just can't do it. And Moses, 40 years later, 38 years later, says, oh, yeah, you couldn't do it. But your children did. The ones you were afraid of. They proved all those 10 spies and to those children proved to proved to them that their parents who agreed with the spies were full of it. They were, they, were, they were full of their own fears, their own lack of self-control and what was right and what was wrong. They didn't use the facts they had, which was all the knowledge of God and what God gave to them, and didn't use it to a- apply to the given situation. They used their knowledge to, to, to use it for a form of wisdom. So he lived long enough to be able to do that. God was kind to him in that capacity. I'm going to go through a little bit, a little, not too fast, but a little quicker here. Um, in verse 9 through 18 of chapter 1, chapter one 
Uh, Moe's obviously goes through his list of how he selected the people to be in charge of stuff. Now, note in this list, uh, he doesn't go through actually individual names, but he takes some obviously lists of you know tens and hundreds and thousands and yada 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 people, tribes, and also judges. So his point here is that it, these leaders of these various tribes and these various groups may not necessarily have to be a judge of them. They might be, may not necessarily have to be though. They can be the judge can be a different group of individuals or a mix of bag of individuals. Some who can judge well, but do not necessarily wish to lead people out into war. Um, not all judges go to war. Uh, some may choose not to or not be able to. Note, for example, uh, there can be female judges that are not necessarily warriors, but they can still judge. So judges are not necessarily required to be leaders of tens or hundreds or thousands or, or such, but they, but they might be, what the circumstances happen to be. The people, of course, agreed to it, these individuals that he liked. And note, these same individuals the people had selected and agreed to were also partially, if not dominantly, responsible for the reaction of the individuals when the 10 spies came back. Those spies came back and were supposed to give them a good report. They gave a bad one. I ask you, into your own head, your own thoughts, your own mind, don't answer the question. When you were young and you had somebody over you, your parent or, or a guardian of some form, you tend to follow suit because you're young. You're under their influence. Why? The world they're leading you, they're taking care of you. So if as you're older, we really don't change much. We're still human. We kind of do the same thing. But instead of our parents, we call them, you know, mayors or or or, or governors or, or presidents or, or or senators or whatever. Same principle. When they say you should do this, it's the best for you, and, and we know what's right for you. It is a normal human tendency, unless you are rebellious by nature, um, to follow suit. Say, okay, I will do what you suggest because I'm, I'm deferring to your knowledge and wisdom. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but that puts more responsibility upon those individuals, that, that leader, to make wise decisions. Hence, we discussed earlier about governing, self-governing, family governing, village or city governing. If those individuals cannot self-govern, family govern, or city govern, or, or province govern, they are not fit for that position because how are you going to trust them? You don't. So the same principle happens. These individual leaders were supposed to be obviously under good self-control and they can govern well, but they didn't. They followed suit about the 10 spies and with the report they had and they ignored the knowledge they already had about their own personal experience with their God. So the people, of course, before these individuals, they approach Moses, verse 22. Moses, of course, recalls a little bit differently than what's recorded uh, in, uh, in, the, in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, it says, God told Moses and spies out. And this was as Moses, the people told Moses had the spies out. We can debate which one actually occurred. I'm not going to debate the details of, of that topic. Either way, the approach, verse 22, on the pretense of a military strategy, so individuals came to Moses and said, okay, we need a military strategy to approach this area, that these Amorites, these, these people, these individuals, how to attack, what roads to take and such. And it made sense. Um, note, they used a military strategy that that was what they claimed they needed, what was, was the goal of it. But uh, instead of the strategy, they, you note that they didn't have a lot of trust or faith in, that, in, in what they accomplished or what was going to accomplish the past. So it, it, it shows a tendency of the individual of that generation 
to rely upon oneself and not necessarily rely upon one's God. I'm not saying they didn't believe in a God, I'm saying the reliance upon him was weaker for them than it was for their children who grew up in the wilderness. Of course, Moses records, records obviously the, uh, the good report initially before the people go on the last and the, and the bad one. <clears throat> Let's see here for and, and of course, in verse 28, uh, which is a great uh, contrast, note the people just got through wiping out, or not got through recently, the last few months previous to this, this, this never being written or being spoken to them, got through the experience of killing off Og Bashan and Sihon, king of the Amorites, the same people or type of people, I should say, the Amorites, that their own parents were too afraid to go do. And so now he points out in verse 28 that the people you just killed were those same scary people your parents were afraid of. It also puts them, it puts these individuals who are there at most time in to have them a good perspective. Hey guys, we just obliterated the same individuals our parents were too afraid to approach. Uh, clearly that this is, was not as scary as it, as it was to them. It should not have been as scary to them as, as it was to them. As a way of just ex- reiterating to themselves and their families, how, however, that how their experience should be part of the factors that you put into determining what is good and what is bad, uh, as opposed to just your own fears. But verse 27 is what I focus a little attention on. Oh, one. It says, you, referring to his, their parents, you slandered in your tents and said, because you have us hatred for us, did he make us out did they take us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorite to destroy us? To where shall we ascend? Our brothers have melted our hearts, saying that people greater and taller than we, cities greater and fortified to the heavens, even the children of giants have we seen there. So we mentioned this before. I'll mention it again. The Spirit of God does not like slandering. Uh, the Spirit of God does not like people saying, you can't do this, you're not good enough. We know God does not like that. It's pretty obvious. We cannot say, God, this is impossible for you. You're, you, you. It's just too much. It's too hard. We don't shorten God's hand. That's an important thing. We, we, we learn through our Torah, the whole story of how the Exodus occurred and all the Israelites going in and out and all the various We learn that do not speak low of our God. He can arrange anything. So, well, God can't lie. Uh, actually, he doesn't have to lie. He can send an angel to lie. So there's really nothing he really can't do. Okay, you could argue he can't die, but that's a different story. <laughs> so something he couldn't do. But the point is that in reality is there is very, very little, <laughs> if not nothing for all practical purposes, that he can't do. Messiah pointed out, uh, uh, speaking against the spirit of God, there isn't a, a, a sin offering for that one. And hence these people, they spoke against the spirit of God and guess what happened? They're all dead. They said, oh, we're so sorry. We, we, we pray that we'll, 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 we, we repent. And it says very specifically, he refused to listen to their prayers at all. Completely deaf to their apologies. So there's certain requirements our God has. Number one, don't speak evil of him. He doesn't like that. Don't speak slanderous of him. He doesn't like that. 
Don't speak low of him. He doesn't like that. And don't try to shorten his hand saying he can't do something. As I believe Messiah says, don't tempt the Lord your God. Don't tempt him. He doesn't like that. (laughs) So it's an important lesson. Uh, I'm grateful that they learned it and I don't have to. (laughs) Thank you, Father, for that. I appreciate it. Um, Having the story written down for me is very, very helpful, but I can see others making the mistake that I don't want to repeat. Let's see, jump down to verse uh, 37. Verse 37. And so, of course, Moses includes himself at the time when God says, hey, here's your punishment. You got 40 years or you're all going to die because I'm not going to deal with you. I'm done with you. I want your children's dead. Most, of course, includes himself in that punishment. Say, hey, and God said to me, you gotta go. you're, you're dead here too. Note that these events from Moses, and it comes to, the two, they were two different events, meaning that the children of Israel and the spies were one event that resulted in the people not being able to go to Israel or into the land. And then the Moses event with the whole rock thing was a different event that occurred at a different time. Moses grouped them together. We ask us, why does he group them together? It's like Moses was part of the 10 spies saying, oh no, God is too much for me. We can't do it. Oh no, whoa, whoa, whoa. He was in the opposite. But why does he group them together? Now, it's interesting that Moses includes himself in this process, even though it was a totally different event, but the topic is the same. Which is the interesting part. The topic is the same. Meaning the consequence they both suffered, both Moses as well as all the Israelites for 40 years, their reason for suffering is actually the same topic. In Moses' case, he's including himself in God's wrath for slander and lack of lifting God up high. You see, when you fail to lift God up, because Moses at his time with the whole rock thing, he said, must we bring forth water for you for this rock for unto himself, uh, Aaron and God, as if they're all one thing, which they obviously are not. Um, you, he brought God down very, very low to be equivalent to Moses and Aaron. Or you could argue he, Moses and Aaron brought themselves up really, really, really high to be equivalent to God. Either way, you did something that was not supposed to be done. You, 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 you brought God to a limitation of a man or a man up as if they were God. And so God said, you can't do that. It's not different than the, the Israelites, what, 38 years earlier saying, these Amorites are too strong for us. God can't save us. I was like, uh, you don't tell me what I can and can't do. You don't limit me what I can and cannot do. Don't shorten my hand. And Moses, you, in my opinion, that's how I view it, limited God and bring him down as if he was the same as you. You don't limit God that way. So it's the same way of God does not like himself being lifted or sorry, dropped down lower than where he belongs. And as a result, it's a slanderous topic. As a result, the same consequence. Okay, I will remove the blessing from you. And I'm not going to hear your prayers. You can say, I'm sorry all you want. That's great. You should be sorry. But the consequence still holds firm. It's kind of like getting grounded. I have all these privileges, God. I like the privileges. Yeah, but you screwed up. So you're grounded. But I'm sorry. That's good. You should be sorry. Go to your room. But, but, no buts. Go to your room. Yeah, you should be sorry. You screwed up. You made a mistake. You're still going to suffer the consequences of the mistake. I'm, it's good that you apologize. It's good you recognize your error, the error of your ways. But the consequences still hold. 
And that we, we may look at that as an unfairness of God, but he points out our ways once are unfair. Uh, I believe it's a, Ezekiel, I think it's 18, 18 or 19. He says, my ways aren't unfair. Yours are. Your ways are unfair. You hold people incorrectly, wrongly, without forgiveness, but yet he says, I do forgive. And it doesn't say he didn't strike Moses dead at the spot. He let him live and continue on his process. He says, hey, there's just a consequence. The consequence is you don't get to go in. Simple as that. Okay, let's move forward. Now, I like in chapter two, it discusses this, and we actually, it's beneficial to us to see this contrast. This prophet, this, this blessing God either gives or God takes away. Because you will note that in chapter two, it goes to the list of Moses recalling you know, Esau. God says, you will not take any of the land of Esau because God says, I gave that to Esau. And you will not take any land of Moab because I promised that to Moab. You can't take any land from Ammon because I promised that to Ammon. Now, this is what's fascinating. I have a question for you. You don't have to answer, but think about this for a minute. The people that the Israelites are supposed to dispossess, to get rid of, to kill off, to eliminate, were they good, righteous, holy people? Or were they unrighteous, pagan-worshipping, human-sacrificing people? The second, in case you weren't sure of the answer, the second is <laughs> the description where they were. Um, so they were pagan-worshipping, human-sacrificing type of people. And God said, and we'll get there, actually, Deuteronomy chapter 20, but let's jump in real quick. We, I'll just read that real quick. There, the instructions regarding these uh, human-sacrificing kind of people. I won't say that every single one of them were human sacrifice because there wouldn't be any. That may be a blessing if they were, but that is the case. Uh, but Deuteronomy chapter 20 does discover what, what God discusses regarding this particular type of people and what you will and will not do with them. Uh, this is Deuteronomy 20. We read, jump down to verse 20, verse... Uh, Okay, verse 15. So shall you do, this, by the way, we're in the middle of an of, of a, of instruction how you either offer peace to a nation or a city or how you conquer and destroy the city, depending on the circumstances. We're jumping in the middle of this conversation. We'll, it'll cover obviously more detail. We cover chapter 20 in Shoftim, uh, that Torah portion. Anyways, uh, so shall you do according to all the cities that are very distant from you, this regarding peace issues, which are not the cities of these nations. Verse 16. But... From the cities of these people that Jehovah your God gives to you as inheritance, you shall not allow any person to live. Rather, you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, as Jehovah your God has commanded you. So they will not teach you to act according to all their abominations that they performed for their gods that you will, and so that you will sin to Yahweh, your God. Now we read that, that's instruction given in Deuteronomy chapter 20, but we see how it was applied to Siphon and Og. They killed every man, woman, and child, those little ones, like little kids, little babies and such, killed them all. Not one was to live. And we look at that and we're repulsed by the idea of killing infants and killing children, killing little boys and girls. And what, what did they do? Uh, can't they be just retrained otherwise? Well, in God's instructions regarding particular types of people, in this case, the Amorite, the answer was no, they can't be. Now, that's hard for us to fathom, a human being unable to be trained otherwise. But God said no. We can debate and say, well, that's unfair, that's not right, blah, blah, blah. He said no, they cannot be trained otherwise. They cannot be rehabilitated. It cannot be done. So you were to kill them strictly. Now, it's not saying that God can't retrain them. It's that you, the Israelites, 
you cannot retrain them. You don't have the ability, the knowledge, the wisdom, the wherewithal, everything that, 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 that's required to retrain these individual children to not be who and what they are. Kind of very stark terms. But we have to ask ourselves, that's interesting. So the Amorites and Hittites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, God said, kill them all off, only children. They're a human sacrificing pagan worshiping people. But guess what? So was Moab. Moab was human sacrificing pagan worshiping people. So was Esau. Esau's people were human sacrificing worshiping pagan worshiping people. Ammon, human sacrificing pagan worshiping people. God didn't say kill them. Their actions were almost identical. They had their own gods. They killed people on a regular basis, burned them up alive first. They did all the same pagan stuff that we else was doing. What's so unique? Why did God not say, well, take out Ammon, take out Moab, take out Esau too, because they're all the same. Because God's words of promise hold weight with him. And he promised Esau that territory, regardless how Esau conducts itself. He promised Moab that territory, regardless how Moab conducts themselves. He promised Ammon that territory, regardless how they conduct themselves. He did not promise Canaan, Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites. He didn't promise any of them the territory they were in. So God holds his words to a strong, the nth degree, so to speak, on accountability. He makes a promise, he holds to it. We may think, well, that's unfair. That's wrong. That's, that you're, you're double-centered. No, he made a promise and he holds it. Therefore, we can look back and say, thank you, Father, because if he didn't make that promise, where would we be? Look at our scrubs. Look at our history. Where our parents, grandparents, generations before, where we are now. What do we do? If it was that promise, we'd be the same as the Canaanite, the Jebusite, the Hittite, the Amorite, all those, and we would, there's nothing really worth saving. So it's actually a beneficial thing, even though we may think, but these peoples are all the same. Yeah, they act the same, they conduct themselves the same, but God holds his words for everlasting. That's a big deal. It's a benefit to us. Though it may seem abhorrent, they says, kill off these children of the Amorite, Hittites, all the other people. That's his way. And he's right. Whether we understand it or not. Let's see here. Jumping down to verse, up to two, uh, we're going to... Uh, Oh, uh, he also points out that Moses was so kind to explain to us that uh, at the time which they entered the camp of the Arabah area, uh, this is verse uh, 15, even the hand of Yehovah was upon them, the Shafrit Israelites, for 38 years, to confound them in the midst of the camp until their end. So was the men of war finished dying from amidst the people. Now that location, finished dying amidst the people, that location is referring to is a place where the Midianite women uh, did their uh, their instance of the, of killing off the last of the old men, the last of the old the old guards to speak. You know, when they seduced the males, so that event would be like, oh, how terrible it was! The ball pure, bad, bad, bad. 
Um, yeah, but note how God used that prophet. You know, he was a, not a very good one. And God said, don't go, but then said, go ahead and go. But let's see what we're going to say. God then used that prophet in the methodology to wipe out the last of the old Israelite warriors with the midnight women. It's kind of funny that he used a very negative, bad, evil thing for a good purpose. It's funny how God can do that. Again, there's very little that God can't actually do. <laughs> Shorting his hand doesn't work well. He can do even with corrupt and evil things as that. He said, not a problem. I can use that too. And then use it for the benefit in the wiping out the people in the 38 years, the 40 years finally ends. So that's that, that last event. So that event was beneficial as well as negative. Beneficial that it wiped out the, the balance of the uh, warriors. And of course, it, then now they can now into the land. Good job. Cleaned it all up finally. Uh, in verse 24, it points out that the, uh, as we already discussed, uh, uh, the Moabite, sorry, the Moab, the Esau, Ammon, and Kaphtorim all took out their respective giants. Uh, note that now, the, again, the secondary purpose of uh, uh, Sihon and all was not just to prove the spies that they were wrong, but also lifted up Israel in the eyes of all those nations. They now hold their same place of, yes, they conquered giants too. And in some instances, the case in particular, Sihon, uh, they conquered giants. The Ammonites were unsuccessful in conquering. So it, it lifted them up. And now basically what he does in verse 24, he says, now Israel is lifted up too. This is rise up across the brook. There are a brook. See into your hand, deliver the Sihon, king of Heshbon, the Ammonite is in his hand. Begin to drive him out, broke war with him. This day I should begin to place dread and fear of you on the peoples on the entire heaven. When they hear of your reputation, they will tremble and be anxious before you. So now just as your brethren Esau and Ammon and Moab, the dread of them was upon their territory that they were conquering. Now it's your turn. The dread of you will be on the area that air territory that you're conquering. So now he basically God's just lifting them up to be on the same boat or same level playing field as Moab, Esau, Ammon, and Kaphtor. If I recall correctly, I've, I looked this up once a couple of years back. I believe the Kaftur, they're, they're grouped in the Philistine groups, but I could be off on that. Uh, I wrote that down in my notes somewhere. I'm not sure where I read it. The Kaftarim were the Philistines. Um, anyhow, because they came in from the, from the Sea Peoples. Let's see. Let's jump to... All right. Well, I, don't, I already explained it to, to you earlier in Judges chapter 11. In Judges 11, of course, uh, this is where Yephthah discusses the same conquering process. I don't know the entire story of Yef. That's a bit uh, lengthy. Just 11 discusses Yef. He discusses and he tries to send a message to the Amorites saying, hey, we conquered this territory fair and square. And it's even though it once was yours, you failed to keep it and we showed up. You weren't in possession of it. So we took it from the people who were in possession of it. Let's see, jump to verse... See, Judges 11, jump down to verse 12. Yet this is the message to the king of Ammon, saying, What is there between you and me that you have come to me to make war on my land? The king of the children of Ammon said to Yephthah's emissaries, Because Israel took away my land when it ascended from Egypt, from Arnon to Jabuk to the Jordan. So now I return them in peace. Yephthah once again sent emissaries to the king of the children of Ammon and said to them, So said Yephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab and the, children, the land of the children of Ammon. For when we ascended from Egypt, 
as we went to the wilderness until the Sea of Reeds. And then they arrived at Kadesh. It was an emissary to the king of Edom, saying, let me pass now through your land. The king of Edom did not take heed. It sent also the king of Moab, but he was not willing. So Israel dwelt in Kadesh. It went through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the land of Moab from the east, where they encamped across the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for Arnon is the border of Moab. Then Israel said to to Sihon, king of the Amorite, king of Heshbon and Israel, said to them, let us now pass through your land and tell my place. But as Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his border, rather, Sihon assembled his entire people and they encamped at Jehaz. He made war against Israel. Then Jehovah, God of Israel, delivered Sihon and his entire people into the hand of Israel. They struck them down. Israel took possession of the entire land of, Am- of the Amorite. The inhabitants of that land. They took possession of the entire territory of the Amorite from Aron to Jabuk and the wilderness of Jordan. And now Yehovah, the God of Israel, has driven out the Amorite because of his people Israel. Yet you would possess it? Surely whatever your God, Shemot, lets you possess, that you shall possess. Whichever God drives away before us, that land we shall possess. And now are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he pursue any grievance against Israel or did he make any war against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its suburbs, and Aurora and its suburbs, and all the cities that are near the Arnon for 300 years, why did you not recover them during that time? I have not sinned against you, but you, have, but you do me wrong to make war against me. Let Jehovah the judge decide today between the children of Israel and the children of Ammon. That was Judges uh, chapter 11, verse 14 through 27. But so basically, uh, Yefta is recounting the events that Moses just read through. Moses was recounting as well. Now, Yefta records, obviously, that Moab and, uh, and Esau did not permit them to travel through. Although we do have some indication Moab allowed them to go on the outskirts, and that because he brought the lock for cursing purposes out on the outer edges, uh, as far as the area in which he had his territory. But no one, no one complained. And by his citation here, you get the citation of Balak, king of Moab, it would imply, I'm just saying implication, that Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, even at Yetha's time, was still respected. He had been dead for 300 years, but it was still respected even by the Ammonites. Hence, he would not have even brought it up. I'm suspecting that that king was fairly powerful for his day. I don't know for certain. I wasn't there. Let's jump through this a little bit. I'll jump to Isaiah real quick. Uh, Isaiah is more interesting to me in, in this this whole portion. I want to point out one a few details which does not sit well with most Christians. Um, but point them out. I, we don't shy away from things that don't sit well. They're important to remember. Uh, in verse thirty of chapter two, uh, Sihon, king of Heshbon, was not willing to let us pass through it. For Jehovah, this is chapter two, verse Deuteronomy, that is. For Yehovah your God hardened his spirit and made his heart stubborn in order to give him into your hand like this very day. I cite this verse as well as remember the verse regarding Pharaoh and God hardening Pharaoh's heart, being stubborn, and that God makes certain vessels for destruction, for dishonor, and certain vessels for honor. Some individuals God sets up and lifts up in order to destroy them. Uh, whether or not we think it's right or wrong, there are certain people that will die. And God has set them up in order to kill them. Well, that's not fair. What about self, uh, not self-will, but uh, uh, free will and, and, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm not going to discuss that topic. 
The reality is, God said to himself, the potter makes certain vessels, some for destruction, for dishonor, and some for honor. It is my choice in my life as me, just me personally. I'm doing my best to be the one that, that, that is for honor, not the one for dishonor. <laughs> I don't want to be the stubborn one that gets whacked. But uh, still, it, it, bottom line, that's where some people are. Uh, in some instances, he makes the people, some people who are rich or evil and, and corrupt, he makes them wealthy. And he does. And some he makes kings who are corrupt and evil and murderous. Yep, he does. And some he does, he doesn't. They, he has his reasons. And much like the Amorite, the Jebusite, and Pezrite, and the Canaanite, some of them, he's going to kill off. And that's what he does. He makes them for honor. He makes them for dishonor. That includes everybody. They all have a functionality by the potter who made them. Let's see here. We could jump through. We already discussed the whole no survivors. You're over 20. And so uh, oh, I have a, a, a side remark before I go to Isaiah. Uh, in chapter three, it discusses the Og's bed size and such. And it's all nice and big and everything. The, the whole nine cubits log and such. I have absolutely no idea how, if they defeated Og, the Israelites did. How did Ammon and Rabah, how did they get his bed? It was like, you know, a castle lot was like an auction. <laughs> Everybody, who wants a big iron bedstead? It's, it's hanging out in Rabbi and Ammon's territory. They didn't defeat him. They didn't kill him, but they got his bed. I don't know why. It seems totally odd. Tell um, you can take photographs of it. Then they didn't make a museum for the guy. <laughs> for whatever reason, Ammon got his bed. I, I can't imagine why they wanted it, but for whatever reason, they wanted it. Which is our half to our portion. This is Isaiah. Isaiah chapter one. Uh, Isaiah chapter one is uh, a great chapter. It's it's hard at first to read through it at first. Like, well, oh, God, what are you saying? Uh, until you read more of it and realize, oh, that's what you're saying. Uh, so Isaiah chapter one. This is not the entire chapter. This goes from one verse one through twenty seven. Uh, because the reason that they stop verse 27 is because they always, when it comes off to our portions, it is tradition to end on a high note. I mean, end on a, on a, on a happy note, not a, not a bad note. So typically, when it, when it starts going to the end on something good and positive, then they stop. <laughs> they don't like to finish off the sentences. Like, oh, okay, then it goes back down again. Uh, they like to make you feel good as you left the synagogue that day. So hence, the stop in verse 27 is so continuing on verse 28 to 29 and to the end of the chapter. So Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, when he, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, but Jehovah has spoken. Children have I raised and exalted, but they have rebelled against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its, his, master, his master's trough. But Israel does not know. My people does not comprehend. Woe, a sinful nation, a people weighed down by iniquity, evil offspring, destructive children. They have forsaken Jehovah. They have angered the Holy One of Israel and have turned their back. For what have you been smitten since you continue to act perversely? Each head is smitten with sickness, each heart with infirmity. From the sole of your foot to the head, nothing in him is whole, only injury, bruise, festering wounds. They have not been treated and they have not been bandaged. 
and the wound has not been softened with oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. As for your land, strangers consume its yield in your presence. It is desolate as if overturned by foreigners. The daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a shed in a field of gourds, like a city besieged. Had not Yavah, master of legions, left us a trace of a remnant, we would have been like Sodom. We would have resembled Gomorrah. Stop there for a minute. So, of course, obviously God's having an intense rebuke against what these people are, the sons of Israel in particular. These obviously the kings of Judah he's talking about. Um, now, remember that there's Israel, northern tribes, and Judah, southern tribe. They were different groups of people. They acted differently. But Judah was just essentially kind of like on your way to, to, to hell in a handbasket going 40 miles an hour versus Israel hell in a handbasket going 90. You both get there, which was a little, little slower, but you both would get there. Um, so they both are going there. Uh, Judah was just on the slow, slow track and, and Israel was on the, on the high-speed freeway, the Autobahn, no, no speed limit. So they were just kind of going, going, going. And this was so Isaiah is coming on the scene where uh, Israel is still around, but on its way down quickly. It's not around for much longer. And, uh, and of course, Judah is trying to be better, meaning some people are, but not doing all that great at it. Anyway, so they're all going downhill. He's pointing out that this instruction is, is, is applies to Judah just as much as does Israel, even though they are different nations and they acted a little bit differently, they're still heading in the same direction. So had God not left them something. Now, I want to pause a minute. The reason I'm pausing, pausing there, as I mentioned before, but remember that Amorite, the Hittite, the, the Jebusite, all the gods said, kill them all, kill everybody. Babies, women, children, kill them all. Don't let live. But Moab and Ammon and Esau were acting almost identical. Yet God said, didn't kill them off. Don't wipe them out because God made a promise. This is the promise I'm referring to here in Isaiah. The same promise here. If God had not left us a little remnant, a trace of remnant, because God said, yeah, I'm going to wipe you, kill you all off, but I made a promise. I'm holding myself that promise. So God holds himself the promise. He made an agreement. Therefore, he holds it. Even though it may look like these people are terrible, awful human beings, God says, yeah, they are, but I made an agreement. Just like I did with Moab, just like I did with Ammon, just like I did with Esau, I made an agreement. So I'm going to hold that agreement that God made. That's a good thing. Because of that agreement, Israel still exists. We all still exist. They want in verse 10. Hear the word of Jehovah, O chiefs of Sodom. Give ears the teaching of our God, O people of Gomorrah. Why do I need your numerous sacrifices, says Jehovah? I, am I sated with elevation offerings of rams, the fat of fatlings, the blood of bulls, the sheep and goats? I do not desire. When you come to appear before me, who sought this from your hand? To trample my courtyards? Bring your worthless meal offering no longer. It is incense of abomination to me. As for the new moon and Sabbath and your calling convocations, I cannot abide. I cannot abide. Monastery was solemn assembly. My soul detests your new moons and your appointed times. They become a burden upon me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you were to intensify your prayer, I will not listen. Your hands are replete with blood. Pause there for a minute. So we have a, a, a portrait. There's a lot of similarities here with what Moses was saying. Didn't Moses just tell them in Deuteronomy 1, 
I was tired. I couldn't bear you anymore. You were too numerous for me. Your problems were too much for me. I need to expand it and get other people to share the burden. It was too much. And God's putting out here, hey, your problems are even too much for me. God is saying, it's even too much for God. That's pretty tough. Your problems are pretty awful. God won't even handle it anymore. And it's, I cannot handle all these things you do that are basically essentially are empty. I detest the new moons. And, and your point is, how can that be? How can God detest them? Did he not create them? Did he not appoint them? Yes, he appointed them. But as with Moses' time, with the 10 spies, there was nothing in them, in those people. There's no, there's no faith or trust in those people to begin with. So regardless of the words they use, when they repent and say, God, we're so sorry, we really actually do want to go, we, 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 will, we will listen to you, we will go to the Amorites, we, will, we'll, we, we repent, we're sorry for our screw-ups, for our disbelief, our lack of faith. God says, no, you're not. I'm done with you. Peanuts. <laughs> empty peanut shells. Here's how the peanuts, the whole bag of peanuts, bag of peanuts and all of them empty, just the shells. You, you say the words, there's nothing in them. You're empty. So all this stuff, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed times, yeah, you come, you go through the process, you, you go through the step by step by step, but it's empty. It's empty to you, therefore it is an abomination to God. There's nothing in it. Let's continue on. Verse 16, wash yourselves, purify yourselves, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Vindicate the victim. Render justice to the orphan. Take up the grievance of the widow. It's not there for a minute. Where is, you know, oh, you know, obey your Shabbat, you know, with your whole heart in verse 16. Where is, make sure you do your appointed times the way I intended them to be in verse 16. Where is, uh, you, you, pretty much anything that you're supposed to do in God's eyes in verse 16. None, none of the instructions of how to live or, or how to conduct yourselves is it there. It's how you react or how you deal with, how you interact with other humans. Justice, victims, orphans, doing good, grievances. Be a good judge. Did not Moses say, I appointed leaders of tens and thousands and hundreds and such, as well as judges? And so he warned the judges, do not judge with partiality. You hear the weak and you hear the strong, the great and the small. Judge them all justly because God is the judge. Judge and judge well. That's what God values. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says Jehovah. If your sins are like scarlet, they'll become white as snow. If they become red as crimson, they'll become white as wool. If you're willing and obey, you will eat the goodness of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. The mouth of Jehovah has spoken. So it tells us in this reasoning of verse 18 and 19 and 20, that if you do obey verse 16, which was to, uh, sorry, verse, verse, uh, yeah, verse, verse 17, to learn to do good, seeking justice, vindicate the victim, render justice to the orphan, take the group's widow, then verse 18, your sins will be like scarlet. I'll erase them. Wipe them out. That's interesting. That's fascinating, actually. That I can make a sin, I can do something wrong, but if I do something else that is good, 
that is righteous and holy, God can take that righteous and holy good thing I did to justice somebody else and take out or erase or cover over the sin I did earlier that may have been completely unrelated. That's a fascinating tool God seems to have to actually truly give a balanced scale. So he gives a, hey, there is right and there is wrong. You did wrong and you did right. And I can even use your right to outweigh or cover over or wash away, more accurately speaking, your sins. Now that's a Jewish philosophy speaking, by the way, not not mine. That's Jewish philosophy. And that's actually consistent with what Messiah said too. And more specifically, James said it, but about the prayers of righteous man. Righteousness can do an awful lot. It has a lot of power that God weighs and uses. It's a good thing. Uh, Verse 21. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She has been full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your, your heady wine diluted with water. Your princes are rebellious and associates of thieves. Each of them loves bribery and pursues payments. They do not render justice to the orphan. The grievance of the widow does not come to them. Therefore, the word of the Lord, Jehovah, Master of Legions, Mighty One of Israel, Oh, I shall be relieved of my adversaries. I shall be avenged myself of my enemies. I will turn my hand against you until I refine your dross as with lie. I will remove all your base metal. Stop there for a minute. So who are his adversaries? Those who are supposed to be following, purifying, looking for justice and who aren't. Those who are supposed to be looking for good and vindicate the victim, but aren't. Those who are supposed to render justice to the orphan, but aren't rendering justice. They're supposed to take up the grievance of the widow, but aren't doing it. Those who aren't doing it, those are God's enemies. Tell you how important they are to him, isn't it? He values them even over Shabbat, even over the appointed times, even over your offerings to him. He values these things beyond any of them. Because these things define what his enemy is and what his enemy is not. Verse 26, then I will restore your judges as the first and your counselors as the beginning. After that, you will be called a city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed through justice and those who return to her through righteousness. But calamity awaits, I'm I, I finished the whole chapter because that's important to me. Calamity awaits, rebels, awaits, rebel, blah, blah. The, but calamity awaits rebels and sinners together. Those who forsake you of all will perish. For they will become ashamed of their idolatrous elms that you, des- that you desired, and you shall be embarrassed over the gardens that you chose. For you will be like an elm tree with withered leaves, like a, gold- a garden without water. The mighty will be like flax and its maker like a spark. The two of them will be burned together with no one to extinguish it. So that conduct that we hear about here in Isaiah chapter 1, is so critical to him, it actually overpowers the idea of you know obeying the Torah, meaning obeying the appointed times, Shabbat. God says, hey, your conduct is more important than that. 
that God's own appointed times, which is that are, are, are very important. He made them for men to do, to live your days of rest. But your content, how you treat others, outweighs them all. That's a big deal. Um, I, I say that because I had recently run across a, 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 a topic um, that had come up. These, these weightier matters are very important. Uh, you will note, those of you who have followed this the past though, 20, 20 or 30 years or so, um, there are philosophical beliefs and opinions within side of, I use the term in its broad brush term, so don't, don't take offense to it, in the Messianic or in the Hebraic roots or in the, uh, the various other semi-Christian slash kind of Jewish flavoring type of movements that have been around for 30-ish years now, maybe, maybe more than 30, about 30 or 40 years now, in the form of it has, not always, but has come out for condemnation. Well, you have this day, you got that day wrong, or you do this thing right or wrong, and I'm right, you're wrong, blah, 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 blah. And I'll have nitpicking and anger. And anger comes out from them. Not from necessarily each other, but their past. Um, how many of you, you don't, 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 don't answer the question, but inside your own head, you just think to yourself, when, you, when God opened your eyes to see something different, and you look back and say, wait a minute, you mean my Christian church pastor didn't tell me the truth? I was lied to? And think about the emotions you had, the frustration, the anger. The, but everybody should know that there's, there's more to this than what we've been told. Yeah, all that stuff. All those emotions, all those intensities, yeah, those are self-defeating. I've told people many times in the past when this topic comes up, remember when you first became a Christian of anything, like first believed there was a God and realized that you actually didn't deserve kindness. You just committed a sin. You realize, God, I'm a terrible person. How can you forgive me? Look what I just did. I know, even if you didn't, if you didn't tell anybody else, you knew you did something very, very, very wrong. And yet, he still forgives you somehow because <laughs> you go past it. You realize, okay, there's more to him than just this one sin idea. Well, that same idea has to apply to all of us, how we interact with each other too. And that I have a past, you have a past. I may say, well, so-and-so didn't tell me the truth. He, he told me Christmas was great and you know, Jesus was Santa Claus practically or whatever. I, I thought they were all the same. And they're not, and I was lied to, but God forgives me for my own screw-ups. What must I now do? Forgive them. What they were doing and what they are still doing because they're trying their best. Even if they're just misunderstanding, confused, and a whole bunch of strange stuff in their head, it doesn't matter. That forgiveness is really important. That's essential. I use this term as a joke, that's Christianity step one, forgiveness. That includes forgiving those who you thought lied to you. you know, it's, it's all inclusive. You have to forgive them all, whether you like it or not, and continue on forgiving process. But, but they're still deceiving. Uh, you can argue that. But the point is that continuous forgiveness is what matters. And uh, that justice, that, that focus is really, really critical. 
And if God is able to weigh justice and righteousness and kindness to one another and seeking the benefit of one of a fellow man who is good outweighs even the Shabbat observance and Torah and other, other appointed time observances and your offerings, if, if, if they outweigh this, why are we fighting about this then? Why do we argue about it? Why do I say, well, you're doing it right or I'm doing it wrong or whatever, vice versa? The value of God is placed upon how we interact and treat with others is so much higher and more important. Hence, he points out, I, he can wash away our sins. He can make us clean by how we help and work with and show him to other people, to our conduct. It's really important. He even t- declares it himself. It's so important. He'll even allow it to outweigh, in your particular instance, the laws he gave us. It can actually outweigh them. The way to your matter is the law. Justice and kindness and mercy. I believe James said, record, those who show no mercy, the God will show no mercy. If you show no kindness and love to someone, God shows you no kindness or love. So it's really important to be like God. So in Moses' farewell address, when he points out, okay, you guys, you all screwed up in all these different things in your lives and the, and the tasks you didn't, didn't do, and he lists all these different places you screwed up in the person in chapter one, verse one of Deuteronomy, all the various uh, uh, rebelliousness and the slandering you did and, and everything else that the took place, remind them of all these things. He says, okay, guys, you're going to this new land. Here is good conduct. Let's go through this and how we interact with the people. Let's go through the book of Deuteronomy all the way through. How do we conduct ourselves well? How do we treat each other properly? How do we take care of those who are poor, who suffer, who need assistance, who need help? How do we treat other people how you want to be treated? That's basically what he's pointing out to them. And so Moses brings back the, that his, his, his process, his, his concept of, a, of appointing leaders and judges who screwed up initially because of lack of faith, of true faith, they are still there, meaning you have new judges, new leaders. We have self-control. We have self-governing. Govern ourselves. Make good decisions based on what God instructs us to do and what he values. He values how we treat the people. That's really important. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, those failed judges that Moses' time failed, of course, 40 years earlier, but the new ones, which we read about book of Judges, some of them do pretty well. Some of them judge righteously. They did learn. Generations can change. People can change. Any questions or comments about this Torah portion or the Hoff Torah portion? I'm not going to cover Matthew's, uh, the, the New Testament portion of the book of Matthew, which is semi-unrelated. Um, it has to do with not the Torah portion, something else. But that's, that's my discussion for today. So if you have any comments or questions, I can answer any questions for you. Unmute yourself and we can discuss the topic uh, or otherwise. Larry has a question. Go ahead, Larry. Oh, I just had a couple of comments that I thought were, I hope, I hope it's not, uh, well, I, they, they seem kind of humorous to me. Go ahead. Um, and we go to, uh, in, in Isaiah where he says, uh, the ox knows his master's manger and the 
And he's saying that he's kind of saying there, my people are stupider than an ox. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're, they're, they're less than a donkey. Right. They're dumb, dumber than a donkey. Dumber than an ox. Yep. That's about right. And the I'm thinking are, about, go ahead. They're beasts of burden. They have a job to do. The ox does its job and does it and knows where its food's at. It knows where it's benefits from. The donkey is a beast of burden. Israel was supposed to be a beast of burden to know your job and to get blessed from yeah. it. And they wouldn't do it. They can't even do the job. They can't even tolerate the blessing they get. They, they, they don't recognize the job nor the blessing that's supposed to be for them. Yeah, it is, a, it is being a... Yeah, he is being funny. God has a sense of humor. He invented all of ours. <laughs> I'm thinking too when the master said what you were talking about forgiveness and the master said, I do not say you should forgive them seven times. I say you should forgive them 70 times, seven times, which would cause us to definitely lose count of how many times we forgave them. Oh, totally. So we're definitely forgiving them forever. Right. Essentially. Yeah. Cause, cause each time, every time, each instance, <laughs> uh, Daniel, you had a you comment that? I, yeah, I, I do. Um, I'm kind of, Thinking about fear, you know, they were afraid to go into the land, so you know they got spanked, you know, by by uh, Jehovah, and so is getting into fear the same as disobedience? That's a great question. Um, that is a great question. Uh, it's a question that's, that's come up multiple times, not just you, but for just in, in life in general. Right. Uh, almost always, that's a fair equivalency. Um, and the fact that if, if you allow fear to rule a decision made or not made, whatever, if you have a fear to rule it instead of God to rule it, you made the wrong decision. God doesn't rule by fear. He rules by his faith and trust in the words he spoke. So to be afraid of something is almost always the wrong thing, except your fear of him. <laughs> that your fear of God is you are being ruled by God. That's good. But your fear of what is not God or is not directly from him, that is not to fear. I mean, it, uh, it, it almost seems like he uh, is more willing to deal with our sins than he is with our fear. That's, that's a fair assessment. Yeah. When he tells us to fear not something, and we give in, uh, where's the provision? Yep. <laughs> I mean, we need forgiveness. For we do. Just, you know, what we give in. Yeah. That's a, that's a, I, I've run across this over many years. I'm sure many of you have too. Dealing with fears. What makes you not want to do something, it prevents you from doing something, or makes you something you don't want to actually do. So those fears, as these people, they were afraid to enter the land, uh, those fears prevented them. And as a result, God said, I'm not going to forgive this. This is done. I'm finished with you. And so you all die. Uh, that fear is a huge component inside of humanity. Yes. You will note when angels show up, which they don't show up very often, when they do pop up in your text, Almost always the first thing they say is, fear not, don't be afraid. <laughs> now, I know this is a scary thing. I wasn't here and poof, now I am, but don't be afraid. <laughs> That's hard to not be afraid. Wait, there was just empty space and now there's not. What, how did this happen? 
first thing, don't be afraid. So God's primary input, though it is a fearful thing, don't be afraid. Just so to bring this around to today, hey, you know, this, this past week, uh, we've invited several different parts of the family to come view the house, which they've never seen, you know, and, and share a meal. They're, they turn us down because they're yeah. afraid. Yeah. And I just see it here. The fear of this virus is ruling people's lives. It is. It rules it and ruins it. I, I think we need to come to grips somehow with where do we really need to place our fear? Right. Not our, not not to be stupid, not to be ignorant and and disrespectful of other people, but you know, are we gonna fear the virus more than before life? Yeah, yeah, then thank God. Yeah, that, that it is an interesting thing to watch. I see different people, not to say all, all of our congregation members, but people throughout, throughout people I know in, in life and in work and everything else around me, the varying levels of fear. And they do different, they, 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 it controls them in different ways. Um, and most people typically that I've run across are afraid of what they don't know. So they don't, because they don't know how to deal with the illness, this illness, they're afraid of it. And they're not, they're not afraid of like the flu, for example, or a coming cold or most other diseases because they know how to deal with them. Well, it's because they don't know how to deal with it that they're, they're, they're afraid of it. Uh, and that is a, is, is a weakness within inside of humans. We just, we have that natural fear. We put ourselves what we don't know. But that fear controlling you and what you want to do and what you should do and what God says to do is not beneficial. I'm not saying we should all go out and throw caution to win. Uh, the point is that don't be afraid. And I do realize there are many people who are far, far smarter than I am, who are working very hard at all the different options and different techniques and solutions and methods of, t- of dealing with illnesses and diseases. And they're saying, okay, do this, do that, do the other thing, whatever it may be. And knowledge is increasing regarding these illnesses. And it's just time will come by and they say, okay, yeah, this is how we, this is how we cure it. And they'll just they'll deal with it that way. And they're working on it. And there are many people who are publishing articles and tests, the hey, test cases of this is how we actually cure it. These people, this, this population. And, and they deal with it that way. And once you run across that knowledge, then your fear goes away because then you know how to deal with it. It's like, it becomes much like you would have flu. I mean, now we know how to deal with it. We're going to cure it. Move on. Um, and so it's that knowledge people are after in order to get over this particular fear. Uh, I have to admit, I look around me and say, well, I trust my God. And I know that he doesn't give what I cannot handle. But if it is my time to go, there's virtually nothing I can do to stop it. Whether or not he says, you're going to go today or you're going to go next week on Tuesday, that's what will happen. On the other hand, if God says, you're not going to die today because I need you for something else, guess what? I'm not going to die today because <laughs> he needs something else. So there is a bit of trust in there. In well, that. We, each of us came to our individual uh, surrender, you know, of our lives. <sighs> okay, it's yours. Yeah, it's yours. I'm my own. I'm not my yeah. own anymore. Right. I have no control. I never did. Right. <laughs> we pretend to have control. <laughs> I think we need to be reminded at times that. Oh, yeah, I gave 
all of me to heaven. Every breath I take is a gift. Yeah. I have to remind myself every day or so, go out there out of the park and okay, God, I trust you. Just to say it out loud to myself to hear my words, I trust you. Yes. And that, 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 that release, I trust you. It's okay. This is going to happen whatever it is. It's okay. Uh, no, I'm doing it for various reasons, not just for illnesses, but for employment too. But, but I trust him. He has this set up. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen according to his will. And, and I'm okay with that. Whatever it looks like. I'm not going to, I don't, I enjoy it. I keep telling myself, hey, I'm not going to put a picture of what it must look like upon him. <laughs> I'm not going to shorten his hand. But look at whatever he decides it looks like, and that's how it is. Trust you. But that, that idea, that sense, it's a type of surrender within, in a peace inside oneself. Just trust him. He doesn't make mistakes. He's got this. It's important. It's very important. Amen. Almighty God, a good Father, thank you for our Shabbat, a day of rest, our day of study, a day of, of understanding. We ask you to continue to help us understand, to follow what is fair and just and true. Father, we ask you to bless us and bless those who, who, who we care about and we love. They will follow your will to prioritize what is good in your eyes and not our own. That your priorities, what you value, is what we should value. Help us, Father, to always keep that in mind. To always know that this is according to your ways. Whether we understand your ways or not, it doesn't really matter. That we are trying our best to follow them. That's what matters to value you, Father, and value justice and kindness and love and mercy. Father, we ask you to bless us the rest of our Shabbat time, Father, as we, as we conclude our service, Father, you will, you'll be with us, be with our families, our loved ones, those we pray for, those who are sick and suffering. May your will always be done. We glorify you, Father, in Yeshua's name. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.